Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network podcast. My name is Lee Pierce. I am your host of the channel and language. I use she, they pronouns. And I'm so excited today to welcome J. Timothy Dalmage, the author of Disabled Upon Arrival, Eugenics, Immigration, and the Construction of Race and Disability, released 2018 from The Ohio State University Press. This was a really fabulous read, and I thought just very timely for everything that's happening with with new anxieties around immigration in the last couple months. And essentially, the book argues that especially in North America, which is the context in which the book is written, crosses uh, Canada and the United States especially, immigration has never been about immigration. That was true in the early 20th century when anti-immigrant rhetoric led to draconian crackdowns on the movement of bodies, and it is true today as new measures seek to construct migrants as dangerous and undesirable. This premise forms the crux of the book, a compelling examination of the spaces, technologies, and discourses of immigration restriction during the peak period of North American immigration in the early 20th century. And as usual, my terrible Valley Girl New York accent (laughs) messed up a couple of those words, but don't let that reflect negatively on the book. That's my New York State upbringing, not the book's fault. And we're actually being joined by Jay from Canada today. Jay, are you there? I am, yes. Wonderful. Well, this is a fabulous book. Such an interesting read. I mean, not always happy, <laughs> but always yeah. fascinating. And would you tell us more about yourself and how the book came into being? Sure. So, um, yeah, I, I uh, uh, began working on the book actually when I was living in the United States in West Virginia. Um, and I was really interested in, um, I'm, I'm a, a rhetorician. That's my, my background and training. Um, but, uh, but my main f- area of, of research is in disability studies. And so um, I've always been, been uh, interested in thinking through the ways that how we talk about disability shapes people's lives and experiences in these really tangible, often really negative ways. Um, because we have, we have such a kind of limited vocabulary and grammar for the ways that we think about bodies. And, and um, uh, looking at, at 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 immigration in the early 20th century um, began as kind of a way to look at immigration in the 20th century and and go to these archives at Ellis Island and in Canada and Pier 21 and other places and just sort of begin understanding how so many of these attitudes um, around disability were formed and pretty soon I realized that 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 anything I was studying in the early 20th century needed to be picked up and applied to kind of contemporary um, uh, debates and uh, discourses around disability and immigration and race and racialization. Uh, I think as the project matured, like as I kept working on this, it became more and more and more about the present in ways that I wish weren't happening. You know, the the book manuscript was sort of finished um, the summer of 2016. And uh, one of the big arguments in the book is that it's not a good idea at all to historicize 
eugenics um, and immigration restriction and the links between those two things. And as we've seen since 2016, that's really true. Um, eugenics has not gone away. Um, and the ways that we talk about immigration um, have become even more highly charged and um, dangerous. So I, I guess that, that's a kind of convoluted way of saying, uh, of, of saying a couple things. One is that um, it's not a historical project, even though so many of the materials are historical. Um, and two, that language is really at the center of the book. So much of the, the negative terminology that we have around disability came from this really bad pseudoscience at the turn of the 20th century. Um, it was bad science then. It, it continues to be um, really bad science now. But these, the, these ter the terminology that we have and even the kind of technologies that were developed at that time, and I focus in the book a lot on um, photography, they were really teaching us how to look at other bodies and really how to look at ourselves in ways that are, um, in some ways, even more pervasive now um, than they were at that point in time. Yeah, and I really like this, this, this issue of limited vocabulary. I think the book does a great job of really pointing out, and of course, this is a basic fundamental premise that we share in what we do, which is like, you can't think new thoughts without the language in some ways to think mm -hmm. them. And so not that disability isn't real, but that it, it, is, it is not understandable without language to think about it. And so when you have limited language, you have limited ways of understanding disability and its relationship to immigration, especially because you're looking at two already restricted discourses in terms of our options for talking about them. And now you have them overlapping. And so it gets almost tighter in terms of what people can think. And so you have this argument that, that immigration is never about immigration in the first chapter. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Or maybe do you want to dive into... Um, more background on the book? Sure, I th think, well, okay, so immigration is about immigration um, in that, you know, this is severely limiting the movement sure, of sure. some people, some, some bodies across borders and others not, picking those borders up and applying them um, right. in, in new ways, you know, all of those kinds of things. But it's also such a, a, a much bigger idea. Um, and it's so linked to the kind of ways of, um, classifying uh, deviance and difference uh, that we really, that, that it's important for me, even though it's a little bit overstated to say that immigration was never about immigration, it's important to make that argument in a strong way, I think, because what it underlines is that when you, what we're really talking about so much of the time when we're talking about immigration is about, it, it is a way to, it's a way to be racist. It's a way to be xenophobic. It's a way to insinuate that there is a kind of hierarchy of biology and bodies um, and to enforce those, that, that value system really uh, in ways that are politically um, expedient um, and that, that, that drum up some of the kind of worst, worst parts of the 20th century um, and link to those things too. I mean, one, just as a kind of, to give something tangible, it's really interesting that in the period I'm studying, um, people are arguing, arguing, arguing for more restricted immigration, and they're using these eugenic arguments to do that. By the time they get really draconian restrictions on immigration, they then start moving their emphasis away from Ellis Island, and we begin having this, that same year anti-miscegenation laws. We begin, uh, North uh, Americans begin policing the U.S 
U.S.-Mexican border in greater, uh, um, in, with more power and, and influence. And, and so immigration is the thing that, that gets these arguments to be picked up and applied. And then as soon as they get picked up and applied, there become new ways to use, utilize them to, um, to do that same kind of d different forms of discrimination um, in, in new ways. There's a interesting quote from a, a, an individual who, who studied the history of Canadian eugenics, Angus McLaren, and he writes that kind of for eugenicists, um, getting policies or laws um, or something like an immigration act passed, those were really important goals but eugenicists always knew that the most important thing they could do was just get people to understand the biological arguments behind eugenics, as flawed as they were scientifically, and that then the general population would take those ideas and apply them in all kinds of new unforeseen ways. That eugenics was most, um, had its most potential rhetorically and as an idea even more so than as something that could be enshrined in law. And I think we see that very much. Mm. Um, I think we really are in a, in a very um, crucial time right now mm -hmm. with a, a global pandemic yeah. um, where we really need to be carefully understanding the biological arguments that are getting made, the ways that different bodies are being classified um, as risks or as uh, drains and mm, mm -hmm. we've seen through through history when in when there's an economic downturn when there are global crises disabled people are the first to be constructed as less valued yeah. um, and we're seeing that now with um, protocols around treatment we're seeing that in terms of the support the social supports that get um, that get that get uh, uh, created for people um, that that truly disabled people are being constructed once again as disposable. And yeah. it's really quite scary. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and you, um, so yeah, so I think it's fair to say that, uh, that immigration is not ever just about immigration or, yeah, I think, I think that that's fair. And I, I don't think it came across in the book as if you don't have, sure. <laughs> like, yeah, immigration is real, right? The moving of bodies across boundaries, just like totally. having a disability is real. It's just, they're always also yeah. not always the same, which is, will you say more too about this concept of what it means to not historicize something. Cause I found that so fascinating in the book because so often you hear everyone say, historicize, historicize, historicize. Yeah, it's true. Well, and so, and that's really important. Um, and maybe that was, if I'm being completely honest, that was part of what I thought the pro project would be when I began doing it was to better understand what, even for me, where, terms like you know really negative terms like the word moron or idiot or retarded you know that these were eugenic terms and they're based on really bad science but they still get used um and so i was historicizing to begin with but what i realized the, the majority of people do is they they say um eugenics was an idea from another time and even an idea from another continent <laughs> And the truth is, when you actually begin doing the historical work, and I'm sure lots of listeners to, to um, this podcast will understand this, um, doesn't mean it's not important for us to continue teaching it this way, is that eugenics really began in North America. Um, it wasn't just a Nazi thing. It wasn't just, um, you know, uh, Hitler, uh, World War II, you know, early 20th century idea. 
Um, it began before that, and it has continued and camouflaged itself in a variety of really um, complicated ways since then. So it's never gone away, but also it never was just uh, something that happened in Germany. Um, right. And I think it's really important for people to, under to understand that. So it's, it's kind of a double move because it's asking sure. people to understand the history, e even, um, and this is very much the case with lots of the history of, 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 of racism, um, with the history in Canada around um, colonialism. You have to understand these things as ongoing processes in which we are all still kind of tangled up. Yeah. Uh, or else it's all too tempting to say that it was just something other people did at some other point in time. Okay, so that, so that okay, so so that's a really good clarification on what you mean. Yeah, that's that it's so true, and not, also maybe not to equivocate, right? Not to say that, um, not to say, oh, it's okay, things ding. <laughs> Let me <laughs> unding these things. Yeah, uh, my life is just a series of dings these days. Yeah. But yeah, and also not to equivocate. I mean, I think it's really easy to think that, like, because we're not doing to people with disabilities what the Nazis did, that like that's progress. <laughs> sort that's of right. like, well, that's a real low bar. <laughs> Yeah. And you do, you know, at Ellis Island, that's one of the real sites for me as a kind of rhetorical space and as a space where so much of this discourse um, comes and as a place where people really historicize things and they, they believe that, that, that these uh, immigration restrictions that are based on, on ideas around race and ethnicity only happened at Ellis Island. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, you know, Nazi doctors came to Ellis Island to study how Americans were using immigration eugenically. And they based so much of what they did on things that began at Ellis Island. So in that sense, it is important to historicize. Um, it is important for, for uh, North Americans to understand how popular eugenics was. It was hugely popular. Um, and to me, it connects with another, uh, other projects that I'm involved with. Um, uh, one of those is is around, I wrote, wrote a book called Academic Ableism that's looking just at the ways that higher education has, has been a eugenic project, um, not just through the kind of eugenic research that's been done, but also, you know, eugenicists really relied on higher education and the research that was done there to provide validation for their ideas. But it also, they also knew that if they could get eugenics into the curriculum, in higher education, it would have a huge influence, and it really did. One really uh, shocking thing, uh, when it, if you're ever at the American Philosophical Association archives in um, Philadelphia, the Eugenics Society has all of their records there. It's very disturbing to go through that stuff, but one thing they tried to do was just get every undergraduate in, in America to fill in a family tree and, and begin identifying possible, you know, um, genetic uh, inferiority within their own family, and that oh would my make God, them seek, so terrifying. Yeah, and it would make them seek to be at a university with people of better stock, and and that they would then you know somehow make the right choices around breeding, um, and then it's uncanny. Like uh, uh, you know, then then you have these programs, and where I did my PhD, Miami of Ohio. So they have this program called Miami Mergers, and lots of campuses have this kind of lore around meeting a partner there. Um, and Miami Mergers are people who met at Miami, and you, on Valentine's Day every year, you get this 
a Valentine's card from them and you're part of this special group. Um, it's very eugenic and it links to all of these other darker um, aspects of higher education, including, you know, rape culture. And, um, you know, so I don't know, it's, it, it's like once you begin looking at eugenics, what you understand is that point that I just previously made. As an idea, it's so powerful and people will apply eugenic ideas in ways that are unforeseen. Yeah, I mean, I, eugenics is one of those periods of the, again, if you can even call it a period, because it would be crazy to think that we just haven't, that stuff hasn't seeped into our mm. entire mindset, but it's so buried <laughs> in yeah. a way that like completely disavowed. And, and yeah, the book did a great job of, of bringing some of that stuff back to light. Yeah. Um, I, well, you know, and, I, and, you know in, the, in the coming months, I don't know, I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball. Why is there so much dinging? Sorry. I'm getting sent like 50 invitations in one minute here. No, you're fine. It's like nobody gives a shit about you till you're suddenly in the middle of an interview. And then all of a sudden everyone ridiculous. wants to talk. Yeah, no worries. Everyone will understand. You're fine. Um, so uh, what was I going to say? Um, <laughs> just, yeah, just uh, about the sort of, just sort of the, the, the intense disavowal that we have around the fact that we had that, sure. that period where eugenics was considered like legit science. Yeah. And I think, I don't have a crystal ball, but I, I, my feeling is that over the next few months, we should be looking at some of these scholars and disability studies who have looked at eugenics really carefully because we're entering what I think will be a very highly eugenic era. And that is, let me clarify, I think these kind of forms of biocertification that we're seeing, you know, in China, that, that, that people on their cell phones have, have SKU codes that show whether they've recently tested positive for COVID or not. Um, people are going to be forced back into labor situations and work situations that will put them at risk. Um, people who are already at risk, you know, because they're immune compromised or for other reasons are going to be um, having to prove this level of risk. And I think, you know, the other thing that's happening now is when you're out in public, people are looking at one another with a eugenic gaze. And that is they're trying to, to understand the threat um, that another body might pose to them. Um, and that mode of thinking is really dangerous uh, I think it will have really um, terrible um, social consequences. We're seeing it in the racist acts that that um, you know um, Chinese Americans are experiencing and and Canadians. Um, but I think these kinds of things, if we're not very careful, um, will really could really come to dominate the coming coming years. Uh, we're going to need to uh, to create policies um, and procedures that protect people. Um, or else, or else, these kinds of ideas are going to really flourish again. Uh, it will really appeal mm -hmm. to people to be mm -hmm. able to construct their own health and safety yeah. um, by by arranging a, a series of other unsafe and risky bodies right. um, uh, to kind of as a as that part of that process of of um, normalizing our own uh, view of ourselves. And that was very much, I mean, at Ellis Island, the intention wasn't just when people came through, the intention wasn't just to be able to identify really quickly inferior stock. The goal was to teach everyone who came through how to look at themselves and others with a eugenic gaze. 
Uh, I think that's one of the key things I'm trying to get across in the book just by describing those processes and the ideas behind them um, was really that, that it, it was not just about immigration restriction. It mm. was about um, teaching, teaching one another how to look at ourselves and others. And that's how to yeah. real um, ne- negative consequence. Yeah. Oh, I can't, I, I don't want to get into it, but I can't even imagine what you think of some of these 23andMe genetic testing sure. type, type sure. issues. Yeah. Well, yeah. So you start the book with, with, um, yeah, exactly. This sort of the, the, the disability eugenics gaze, right? Looking at people to assess their, their qualifications as healthy stock. And you started at Ellis Island and you kind of give, um, for some people, I think a counter narrative of what that of what that great immigration moment in history looked like, especially when you think of speeches that people give about the immigrant New York and all this stuff. It's like this yeah. is sort of a for some people, this is not a piece of history that they are familiar with. So do you, you said some about it. Do you want to zoom in on any other parts of that case study? Um, well, I think, you know, one one interesting thing I'll say is that it, that and I'll say this to all the listeners. And, and to you too, because you're not, I don't think you're, you're that far away, but you know, if you ever get an opportunity to visit Ellis Island and to, to go, it's a national park so, and, and the archives there are unbelievable. And the people who work in the archives there are terrific and they know everything and they're so helpful. Um, and it's such an interesting experience to travel to Ellis Island right now on a ferry from Manhattan because it's a very, very diverse group of people <laughs> who are traveling to have this kind of tourist experience. And you're moving in a, in a different direction on a different type of boat. But so many of those people would not have had an opportunity to, to make it through Ellis Island. They would have been rejected. Um, and that's not part of the narrative and part of the story, even though it's supposed to be this very mm, embodied yeah. experience of traveling through the space. A lot of the story doesn't get captured. That said, if you have an extra two hours to go into the archive, there is such there are so many rich stories and narratives um, from from oral histories to um, you know uh, images and and um, film and uh, that that really do show such a such a interesting picture of this place really as a place that was about rejection, not acceptance. Yeah, that's so fascinating. It's true because we, you know, this liberal concept of the melting pot, it, it, that sense of, of elitism and selection is, is not there. So this was a really interesting counter history to Ellis Island. And yes, I am not far away. And next time I feel like touring, this will be one of my first stops. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, and I think this is really relevant for right now, mm-hmm. when you, when in, in historical periods, when movement was completely restricted as it was in, in the, the mid 20th century in the States, right? You know, basically there's the immigration from particular places is halted completely. Um, we currently have a, a immigration, you know, ban. <laughs> and when things begin to open up again, there can be some real, you know, um, discriminatory opportunism in how that happens. Um, to have the power to restrict movement so severely uh, is, re- is actually really dangerous. Um, and we need to be paying careful attention to how our borders get opened ag- again as they begin to reopen. Um, and who's going to have that kind of freedom uh, of movement and who's not c- could very much be a, a, such a huge question for us over the coming decade. Yeah, it must, it must be interesting for you, certainly not 
certainly not a happy moment, but interesting that you could write something that, well, it was published in 2018, which means you probably wrapped it up three years ago. And yeah, to suddenly, I wrapped to, it up yeah. right around the time. I had the opportunity to kind of insert um, a, a bit to the introduction and a bit to the conclusion about Trump's election. Right, yeah. And yeah. about the Muslim, the Muslim immigration yeah. ban that happened yeah. pretty immediately um, in, in, I believe in the winter of 2017. Yeah. But then to um, see this all so come back again, it like, was right? uncanny. Yeah, yeah. That's unfortunate, right? Be, unfortunately, but true. And to be totally honest, it was a, it was such a reminder to me because the book does make many, many arguments about not seeing this as historical, but after, you know, as that ban was coming into place, it was such a reminder that that really, really was true. That, that even myself as the author, you want to fool yourself into believing that we are in an era that's more um, enlightened, maybe, or and that's maybe not the best term, but an era that, that, that understands the discriminatory impact of doing these types of things. Um, but we don't. And, you know, the, the, the scary part for me is that I do think historians in a hundred years will look back at this era and they won't do much distinguishing between 1924 and 2024, unfortunately. I yeah. think this has been a long wow. sustained period um, through which immigration has been an idea that gets used um, to drastically um, reorganize and, and sort bodies across this continent in ways that um, benefit white people. Um, and, and that's, that's about as, as simple and straightforward as I can say it. But, you know, the grade four history lesson in, in, in 20, uh, in, I don't know, uh, 2124 <laughs> about this era, I think we'll focus and say for, for a hundred years, we were obsessed with this idea of mm. sorting bodies mm. across borders. Mm. That's interesting. Oh, it's creepy. That when sounds you think so it. No, it's sad, but it's good. It's good and it's true. Um, well, is there anything, um, is there a, a, so after Ellis, so we see it in Ellis Island and obviously it's easy to think of that as, oh, that's history, but you make some pretty compelling cases for how the logics of seeing and organizing bodies at Ellis Island have just, have just reproduced themselves in other places. Do you want to pick one that you like the most or? Sure. Well, I think one for sure is just like the ways that Canadian uh -huh. uh, immigration agents at Pier 20. Pier 21. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a great chapter. Yeah. Pier 21, Shed 21 were really were, we're trying to do a lot of the same things, but we're just so disorganized. <laughs> and there are the archives and the, the work of going back and doing that historical um, work around finding out what was happening at Pier 21 is so hard to do because truly they just were so disorganized. A lot of the stories are just like, you know, people didn't get processed at all. They just showed up in downtown Halifax with all their luggage and nowhere to go. Um, and, and I talk about Ellis Island as being like this kind of like a dream, a combination of, of uh, Henry Ford and Jeremy Bentham. You know, it was such a efficient place for processing bodies. And in Canada, it just well, wasn't um, as will you will you, will you expand upon that briefly? Because I'm not sure that the people listening understand the Jeremy Bentham reference. Sorry, yes. So, You're okay. So Jeremy Bentham is credited with this idea of the panopticon, which is, you know, a, a carceral space, a prison, basically, wherein um, the idea that you're being observed all the time by guards um, takes over 
to the point that everybody feels so watched that they watch themselves. Um, and Ellis Island really was designed that way. It was designed that, that anyone who looked at you within four or five seconds could make an assessment um, of, of your body's worthiness. And so everybody was looking at one another and themselves in the same way. And, and the Henry Ford thing is, you know, it was run like a factory. It's, it was that period where you really did believe in that kind of um, process and efficiency. So there was no wasted movement. You know, people had to carry their luggage upstairs so that they could be watched carrying their luggage upstairs and assessed for whether they could do that. Um, if that makes sense. So it's, it's a highly rigorous, organized, factory-like, um, uh -huh. yeah. it's a machine for, for, for that kind of gaze, that eugenic gaze. It's a big yeah. eugenic machine. Yeah. And, and Pier 21 was just a mess. <laughs> facility and, um, uh, you know, the Americans at a certain point, and we, we saw this again post-September 11th, Americans started to think Canadians are not rigorous enough. And if they're not rigorous, then people are just going to come through Canada and then into the States and everything we're doing to try to um, uh, restrict movement is going to be wasted. And so, you know, the states actually sent their own immigration agents up to Halifax to train Canadian um, uh, Im immigration um, agents. Yeah, that happened again post 9-11 because everyone was convinced that all the terrorists exactly. were going to come in through Canada. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so that's one example. Um, but I also think really through um, photography is one of these ways that um, that bodily difference was was cataloged. And a lot of the, the earliest, most successful experiments in photography were photographs of immigrants. So at, at Pier 20 or at Ellis Island, um, you know, Augustus Sherman, who worked there, he, he asked basically all of the other agents to, whenever they saw a, a, a body that was different, to let him know. And that was most often people who were being rejected and were in, in a kind of no person's land without a, without a state. And they could sit on the roof at, at Ellis Island and have their picture taken because they had nowhere to go. And it took a long time to take pictures. Oh my but God. But then these pictures nuts. became really, really popular mm -hmm. as postcards, cards to visit, which were a very popular form of um, shared, you know, when you went to somebody's house, you, you brought them a, a, a photograph and it was a, it was a gift. Um, but these, these photographs of immigrants became really popular and they were recirculated through National Geographic. Um, a couple of different times, once early on to kind of celebrate immigration and then later to, to, to argue for why immigration from particular countries needed to stop. Um, so the recirculation of those images became a really powerful tool for eugenics. And I think it bears, it's important for us to connect that to other, um, other kind of circulations of, of photographs that we have um, that we that we're seeing now, and those could be the photographs that Trump has circulated and recirculated of criminals, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, that had crossed across the U.S. Mexican border, mm -hmm. um, or or even the, the 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 counter narrative of the photographs of children in in um, in cages um, at, at the border that that is the way of revealing what's actually happening um, through through current um, refugee and immigration um, treatment and processes. Yeah, there hasn't been a lot of treatment of that kind of imagery. So the, um, it was a fascinating sort of, I wouldn't call it the main thread of your book, but it's definitely a sub-thread that I found really compelling. 
Well, and the book is designed as well to be pretty easily readable. And it's not a book that necessarily needs to be read from start to finish. The idea was that each of the smaller, there's small chapters and each one is supposed to function. The metaphor is as a kind of snapshot. So, um, and that all those snapshots that it, it becomes a kind of like deck of images or, or, or deck of, of photos that could be shuffled and reshuffled. Um, so that you could, the book does jump. It jumps sometimes a hundred years at a time, um, or it jumps geographically from one country to another or one border location to another, whether that's, you know, uh, Mexico, um, Canada, United States. Um, it looks at kind of history of um, colonialism, all of these other uh, uh, connected discourses, but in ways that you could pick it up and read any single chunk, hopefully, um, uh, at a time without necessarily having to read the entire thing or read it in a particular order. Yeah, no, I found the book to be incredibly readable. I, um, but it also reads logically in order. I think I liked how you, I liked how you arranged it. So, so we've covered the introduction, which talks about immigration has never just been about immigration, right? Or it's, or immigration is not like a transparent concept. Um, mm-hmm. Then we move into Ellis Islands and how this idea of this, uh, this eugenics gaze, which I loved. I mean, I didn't love it. I just, it was a great concept. It was very illuminating. And then anything else you want to say about um, Canada's Pier 21? Because I do think it's interesting, this idea of, of this concept of like the orderly versus the messy. And so I wonder, is there something about Canada's or, uh, dis, um, disorderliness that has to do with maybe they didn't have the same eugenic gaze as sure. America? Well, it was different because... Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the one, the one thing that's really interesting is that the images that were taken in Canada of immigrant groups and images, I believe, although I, you know, I can't say with total certainty, I, I strongly believe that images of rejected, you know, there's, there's one particularly uh, uh, arresting image of, you know, uh, a, a young man who, who I, I won't repeat the title of the photo, but he's a spectacle of rejection, right? It's, um, I believe that those images were used in a very orderly way in Canada, but not at the border. In Canada, um, immigration agents were sent out of the country to, to target particular Western European countries to try to attract people to come to Canada. And the slide shows, they actually are called magic lantern shows in the history of these magic, they're like, PowerPoints, uh, the PowerPoints of the early 20th century, except they were imbued with this kind of magical sense that they could, um, by putting a series of images in sequence, you could have a particularly powerful rhetorical effect. And they were right, they did have a powerful rhetorical effect. But um, those, the, the images that were taken at the border in Canada or at the immigration stations in Canada, they were used along with images of, of uh, uh, First Nations people in residential schools, along with images of large institutions for people with intellectual disabilities, those were used as evidence that Canada was an advanced country, that you were an advanced colony by showing that you weren't letting defective um, people in, by showing that you had um, you know, basically eradicated the culture that was there before you and that you had a society in which you could sort um, people, the highest t- types of people into in universities and the lowest types of people in institutions. 
And that was the, that was the curriculum of these slideshows um, where you're going to other countries, in, especially in Western Europe, and trying to attract people to come to Canada. You also have images of like giant apples and, and, and um, horses, big horses and, you know, farmland and all of these promises that are being made of this, you know, uh, new, new land um, of plenty, right? But for, a partic for particular people only. Um, so that was part of what, what was fascinating to me. And that's not something that's taught in Canadian history classes, um, just how opportunistic the kind of promotion of, of immigration to Canada was. And that kind of thing we still very much see. There are particular groups um, that are targeted and, and have a, a quite an easy um, pathway to, um, to gain um, citizenship, for example, and other groups that just don't. Yeah, well, it's cool, too, because I think um, I think the United States so often uses Canada as a convenient one dimensional foil every time it either needs to like, like valorize Canada as being so open or or so disorganized that it can't get its shit together. And so I think reading the two countries and their treatment of immigration in these early chapters gives a really dynamic picture about rhetoric and logic and how those and how it's not the two countries it's the way that they see bodies and the way that they think about subjects that it, yeah that, you know. that's so so well put and totally true and and in the same sense canadians like to think that we have these really advanced um progressive yes yes ideas around things like immigration and we do not you know the 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 law that the, the 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 kind of functional law that's in place around how Canada discriminates against disabled migrants is something Trump loves because it would be even more discriminatory than the way that the United States is doing things now. Um, and most people in Canada don't understand just how discriminatory th that policy is, um, but anti-immigration folks in the states do and they look at it and they think we need something just like that um the book is trying to trace that like you just said that the that use of one country as a foil for the other it's trying to flip that sideways when when it's important to do that flipping yeah and and i mean i think comparative reading is always important i really appreciated the fact that you you chose to be as i mean again we're all kind of limited by the language we speak and where we live but i thought i thought being willing to not only talk about borders in the book but jumping borders was really helpful in in fleshing out some of these complex concepts um yeah. do you want to move on away from you, canada's pure 20 oh yeah go ahead you're go ahead I just the one one other thing I just would say methodologically is that I I said at the beginning I am a rhetorician I and I'm not a historian um, it, it's a, it's a historical book but the job of a rhetorician really is to 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 capture the many different ways that that something has been talked about or or um, framed not and to layer them for the reader. And so I really see that as my job. I'm very citational as a, as a writer. I, I'm constantly um, conscious of the idea that there's probably other people that people would be interested to read. And it's part of my job to bring those resources together in ways that showcase other people's ideas. But also, I don't have any certainty as a historian. So the book, I think one of the biggest themes of the book is letting go of that certainty uh, that I really understand or can tell a cohesive story about any of these things. And, and 
it suits the subject because the subject has been so highly rhetorical. Um, but even if it didn't, I'm, I, I'm not trying to do a really confident job of telling a historical narrative. Instead, I'm trying to actually layer all of the different ways that we might look at um, these kind of historical events. Yeah, I always tell people my job as a rhetorician is not to tell you what's true. It's to tell you why you think what you think is true. <laughs> sure. <laughs> right? Sure. And, 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 and this eugenic gaze is just that. I mean, this is, yeah, this is not the facts of the history of eugenics over a century, as if anyone could ever do that. Um, it right. is a, it's tracking a very specific way that we have come to see and think about bodies at the in, at the intersection of being an immigrant and having a disability and i think and i think um it's uncomfortable at times because i see some of my own biases reflected in what you're talking about but that also is how i know that you're onto something right wonderful yeah, yeah. i mean that's the goal yeah, it's, absolutely. it's not supposed to be comfortable. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, no, it was not a comfortable book because even as a, I think especially as a teacher, I'm a college professor and just how um, how accessibility is just such a problem on our college campuses. And then you compound that with how we treat students uh, who who have um, like who are undocumented or have undocumented parents. And suddenly I see all of these matrices of power at work, even in a place where we're supposed to be on the cutting edge of being inclusive. I know. Yeah. yeah. So it gave me a lot to think about, which um, is good. You know, you want to be a little uncomfortable, but it also gave me stuff to think about. And the good news is once you know you have the eugenic gaze, you get to start thinking about how you could maybe not do that anymore. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you need, and, and I, think, I do think it is something we need to be conscious of. And I do feel it's, there, there are particular accents being added, particular framings being added right now um, that, 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 will be difficult for us to understand and unpack and, and um, yeah, but, for sure. but they're very much there. I, you know, I encourage listeners to think about the next time they're outside or they're, they're navigating a public space um, and, and they're uncertain about exactly what the rules and laws are of that space mm -hmm. um, and how they're being looked at by other people and how they're looking at other people. Um, I think we need, we need to be conscious of these things and not get too used to yeah, um, yeah, for sure. To how how we're doing that right now, because I think there is a there are going to be ways that that gets accented with this need to hierarchize bodies and decide who deserves to be at risk and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm, those mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. And one and one of the things we haven't talked about yet is toward the you know in the kind of the latter half of the book, which um, you talk about technologies and affects. So so how we feel. And the way that our so so the way that the eugenic gaze is a is a feeling it's um, mm -hmm. it's something kind of amorphous that feels true to us in our senses as if that's a good reason to do it, <laughs> and yeah. also that there are these technologies that are built into our systems of gazing. Do you want to speak about either of of those since we haven't really touched much on those concepts? Sure. The truth is, in terms of in terms of that. Um, archaeology of the technology, you know, whether that's through, through how I'm talking about magic lantern shows or photography and the ways that they, the photographs began to circulate. I do think, you know, we, we have generation, a generation or generations of people who, and students who are, who understand their world uh, through, through images in, and the circulation of images in a way that is drastically different than, than I did. Right. And drastically different than people did uh, in the, the mid part of the 20th century. Um, 
but that idea of being able to um, immediately look at a, uh, an image and, and ascertain the value of a body, I think is, is even more pervasive now with the kind of uh, technologies for dating, for, um, for uh, constructing our, our sense of selves, constructing uh, an ideal version of ourselves, ideal image of our families, um, an ideal image of our relationships, um, all of these things that, that, um, that don't lend themselves necessarily to, to realism or vulnerability. Uh, we need to understand how those have been built out of this history that in which photography really was very much a eugenic technology. I don't necessarily mm. think that's changed, mm. um, but I'm not an expert on social media. I'm, I'm hoping I can lay that down in ways that my students can pick up um, and apply themselves. Well, at the very least, one thing you can say is that is that photography and all other visual media has to, in some ways, restrict our ability to process disability because you it's only what you can see. Yeah. So at the very least, you got to agree with that. I mean, you can make different arguments. Maybe Maybe a visual expert would about different bodies with different abilities pictured but what about everything else right like the like it's just a new version of carrying the luggage up the stairs right very much yeah yeah very much and it's important to say as we've we've both said a couple of times that's only valuable if you can take if you can see yourself as as responsible for perpetuating that gaze too in and it especially in the way you look in the mirror or in the way you look at images of yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've not been given a very capacious, uh, a very expanded um, vocabulary um, or repertoire for, for, you know, um, for viewing ourselves. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it very much is a, a language that comes from uh, ideas of, of what's missing and, and what's uh, not ideal. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's so much of the focus. Yeah. In L- at Ellis Island, they had a thing called the six second physical. Hmm. And it was this idea that basically you could give somebody elevator eyes, you know, hmm. look them up and down and know what biological stock they were, they came from, whether they oh were my God. stock or not. Jesus. And that's not really gone away. No. Um, it sounds no. so disgusting. And yet it's so much a part of our culture. Yeah. I mean, we just, it's just, it's much more, right. I think it happens on more of a personal level, but so in other words, most people aren't thinking it like, yeah, you might not be a TSA official who's doing Mm -hmm. the six second gaze, but if you're, but if that's how we're thinking about it in the public as like, if not, if not, but even just like the pity gaze, right. The six second there, but for the grace of God, go I kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah, you know, we have we have a lot of rhetorical devices that allow us to push disability away. Yeah, um, and that allow us to fantasize as though it will never impact our lives mm-hmm. um, or you know our embodied selves. Which yeah. it, the, and the only thing that's certain is that that's wrong. <laughs> have so, you ever? Um, oh, go ahead. So that's a pretty you know when you put it in those in yeah. that sense yeah. that yeah. we have all of these tools that help us push it away. And the only thing that's certain is that that's futile. Um, And and the other piece of that is that if we were all invested in a world in which disability was, that there were more positive ways to frame disability and understand it, 
that would be something that would be of benefit to everybody. As kind of dangerous as that argument is, it's one that I want people to think through. Um, you know, disability is real, but it's also socially constructed. And mm -hmm. to the degree that it's socially constructed, it's not done very well. It's very yes, one-dimensional right. and negative. And yeah. the yeah. people that we love and ourselves, we, we will all become disabled. So we should all care about constructing disability in a more positive way. Um, yeah, I took a really good course many years ago at the University of Georgia about um, teaching to people with disabilities. And I, and I got two takeaways from that course that I just think are so valuable. And then I thought about them the whole time I was reading your book. And one is that there's a nickname that not all people with disabilities, but in the disability communities have mm -hmm. for people without visible permanent disabilities. And that's TAB. T-A-B, yeah. right? And yeah. so, it, you know, so sometimes, um, you know, I have, a, I have friends who are, you know, uh, non-sighted non and, and somebody will just like sprint 40 meters to open a door for them. Yeah. Like in this like overly unnecessary, just awkward, just away. And as soon as the door shuts, they'll just like look at someone and just be like, oh, fucking tab, you know, because mm -hmm. it's, it's like what they don't understand is that that is going to, that is going to be all of us at some point And we would not want to be treated like that. Yeah, it'd be great if you'd offer to open the door, but I don't need you to run 30 meters and then make this big fucking deal about the door. Like you think I've never seen a door before, you know? Yeah. And then the second it's not part, an opp opportunity for for heroism. right, yes, it's yeah. not like great. If you're near the door, sure, like, but that's true of someone with their arms full of groceries. It's not a, a right. And the second thing is that any time that we work to be more inclusive and accessible to people with disabilities everybody benefits from yeah. the move because we all are future people with disabilities or we have some disability like learning processing challenges or just not you know i mean it never yeah. hurts anyone to think about accessibility as an yeah. issue right there's no yeah. downside no well, let me give you an example just yes i would right love that i would love that 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 people in the disability com community are really wanting to point out it's a really important time to point out that a lot of the accommodations that we all have right now for COVID-19 are things that people with disabilities have had to fight so hard for for so long. Mm -hmm, Even the mm -hmm. ability to work from home. We now see in so many workplaces, um, working from home is viable. And some people are really good at it and very it, it can be very productive. And yet disabled people were having to, you know, do bend over backwards to borrow uh, Leonard Davis's term, but like to, to prove legally and medically that they should have that opportunity. And they were being fought at every stage. And now all of a sudden everybody can do it and it's not an issue. And we need to remember if things go back to the way they were, that these accommodations are things that some people have been asking for for a very mm -hmm. long time. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, you know, that argument that, that um, when we do certain things for disabled people, it's good for everybody. That's such a powerful and important argument, except that we shouldn't have to say it's good for everybody. It should be enough right. yes, yes, that it right. allows 20% yeah. of the population to, to um, enjoy the, the, the same rights as everyone else. Right, and, right. Yeah, it shouldn't have to be good for you to just do the right exactly. thing, right? Yeah. At it might, the same yeah. time. At yeah. the same time. Yeah. That's yeah. true. That's very true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and you always run into problems now because then, of course, everyone wants to equivocate and it's like, well, if, if then it's not really accessibility. And so I do, like, there sure. is something to be said for just, like, sure. understanding privilege and reallocating privilege by maybe doing things that are a little bit more challenging for you to make yeah. things not so 
terribly challenging for someone else. That's right. That's right. right. Yeah. And so much, so much of the, so, you know, when, and when we're thinking about teaching and we, we're all encouraged now to think about teaching in a different way, mm-hmm. I think we want to think, what can we retain from this that does increase accessibility? Yes, agreed. Um, yeah. What can we pull away that really was for a long time just a kind of fake rigor? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, right. That wasn't right. necessary, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, because I do think it's, we, we, that's maybe a, another way of framing what I've been saying around the need to pay attention to eugenic ideas right now yeah. because they can become very popular in periods like this. Um, is the need to understand and listen to disabled people because they will be they will be capable of helping us navigate a lot of the big questions we're going to have over the coming months. Well, yeah, um, and like, what else has proven the need for accessibility accommodations except all the people now who are sick with coronavirus and can't get things they thought previously? Like, that's not to say it's the same thing as being disabled, but. It's like everyone faces disability challenges at some point in their life. And the problem is that we act as if it's not our problem until it's our problem. Sure. And we act as if it will never happen. Yeah. And now that everyone's starting to see like, oh, no, COVID does not discriminate. Yeah. Well, neither does disability. Like nobody earned it. It isn't some kind of like curse from the God. Like it's a random act of just, I guess, nature, I guess you call it. I don't know. And it could have happened to any of us. Yeah, and at the same time, <laughs> eugenics has taught us that you can actually lay, That's true. lay a, that, mor- right. a moral judgment on top of something like that is true. a body. Yep, that right? is true. Yep. And people um, do it all the time, right? They're, 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 they I think, do. Yeah. yeah, I think we all have the sense that like you made the mistake or you shouldn't yeah. have, especially, yeah, I think it happens There will be very few people with COVID who are not constructed as though it was their fault. Right, right. Why didn't you wear your mask? Exactly, yeah. But the truth is, what we're seeing as we get more and more data is that, in fact, um, COVID will reinforce particular forms of, ge- of, of yes. discrimination, yes. you know, that yeah. particular neighborhoods and, and, um, and groups, um, uh, labor, uh, uh, people working in particular types of ways, um, they've always been, it's always been acceptable to expose them to much greater risk. Right. And right. now there just really is much greater risk. And so yes. we're going to see that bear out and we're going to really need to strongly advocate um, for those people who are being put in those positions of greater risk, whether that's on campus or within our communities mm-hmm. um, more broadly. Yeah. And, and, and since we're already here, you know, you kind of close the book with this idea of just like, you know, kind of like, where are we going in the future of um, like the responsibility for tomorrow, you call it? Do you want to maybe close on those notes or do you think we've covered everything? No, I, th- well, I think that that, that underlines what I think I've just what yes. we've been focusing on. Yeah, it, it, there is that, that it, it's probably a weird moment in the book be, for me to turn and say, listen, you, you just read this whole thing or, you know, you read, you're at least reading the conclusion and there's a big ask here too. And that ask is that you don't, that we don't forget. And that ask is that we don't push this back into being something that's just historical. And that's even more powerful and true now in ways I definitely didn't know it was going to be when I wrote those words. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think there really is a responsibility now. Um, A, to say this is an unprecedented time, but it's not that unprecedented. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. We we actually do have some, some guidance for how we could transform this into, um, 
how we could help, how we could allow this to help us transform our societies in ways that make them more accessible and make them um, less uh, harmful. But this is going to sound kind of sinister. Um, (laughs) There's a playbook for people who want to use this to make our societies more discriminatory. Mm -hmm. There's a playbook for people who want to, who will seize this rhetorical opportunity to paint particular groups as morally and biologically um, lesser. Mm-hmm. And that, that, so that, that I'm pretty certain is, is um, the future that we will face if we're not actively fighting against it. Yeah, absolutely. That's well, a pretty dark thing to say. No, no, I, I mean, I don't think it's dark. I think it's, it's like, it's like responsibility, right? There's, there's yeah. guilt, which is unproductive. Yeah. There's, there's fear, which is unproductive. There's uh, naive optimism, which is unproductive. And then there's responsibility, which is like, you don't have to feel bad. You just have to realize it's a problem and, and take a step to do something. Um, and I hate to ask you this question, but unfortunately you brought it on yourself. Is there something specific that you recommend to people looking for a place to get started? Well, sure. I, I think uh, w- one thing is to look, uh, it, it, I mean, everything is a little bit frozen right now, right? But um, thinking about mutual aid, thinking of, so I'll give you an example in my own community. That'd be great. You know, schooling schooling is a, is a huge issue right now. And access to, um, to education is a huge issue. And that is particularly the case for folks who are new to Canada or new to Ontario. Um, and so thinking about within, there is a kind of efflorescence of community care happening, um, but altogether too often that's happening in bubbles. Or it's happening or, in place of sustained that's right. systemic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So um, now is, now is a really important time to be, to, to be when possible supporting um, groups that are fighting um, xenophobia. Mm-hmm. Now's the time to be supporting groups that are, are fighting for immigrant, immigrant and refugee rights and migrant rights. Um, and, you know, I think probably some steps in, in educating ourselves a little bit more, subscribing to something like, um, you know, to, to a few new mailing lists to learn about something like CARE, you know, the Council for American um, Islamic Relations or mm-hmm. um, other groups that are, that are looking at um, Islamophobia. Uh, and, and thinking about uh, our responsibility to, um, to, to the future, which is, which is a future in which um, uh, w- so, I, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a heady topic. I understand. Yeah. I, I don't, I think the best way for me to answer it is that I don't know what the, what the um, series of steps is necessarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And, and I don't think there is a series. I think it's just, yeah, but I, I agree. I think one thing is to get involved. Um, it, it, you know, like honestly, in terms of just getting people involved in awareness, I did some research before we got here just in case uh, we didn't have anything to talk about. And sure. there are some social media campaigns. And again, I don't want you to think that getting on social media and hashtagging is activism is the only thing. Yeah. But in terms of getting started, um, there's a, we are essential campaign that I really liked about mm-hmm. kind of like thinking about people with disabilities as still essential. Whereas in many cases they're not essential because you know, they have a disability yeah. and, 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 and seeing, cause again, you'll see a lot of places to donate places to provide um, transportation, to contribute to relief funds. 
you'll see that kind of stuff. But I think even more than that, um, a couple of politicians have been getting on with um, with like the what we, there's another one called what we need, like what we need. And yeah. you've seen uh, several politicians, um, Sherrod Brown, Elizabeth Warren, Bob Casey, you know, put, try to like influence the lawmakers to, to get ready for once we are back up and running yeah. to have funds ready for people with disabilities and people who are sick before yeah. they worry so much about corporations or Absolutely. at least with yeah. the same amount of energy, right? They're going to be so worried about bailing out corporations, about what, all, what about all these people who haven't had access to healthcare in months and are really struggling. So that's a great yeah. place to go to get started, but do think about like what you can do to get involved in some of these campaigns to yeah. contribute because that's really what they need. And at your own workplace, yeah. I think too, with your workplace, thinking about if you're on committees, if you're participating in decision-making, if you have a voice, reminding people, what are we going to do for our students or our faculty or our employees or our workers with mm -hmm. disabilities to not define them as inessential at this moment? That's right. Yeah. yeah and I think on a local level, on, on university camp, college and university campuses, I think um, making sure that there are policies around accommodations for staff and faculty. Yeah. Um, because if you don't have those things now, this is the most dangerous time to have bad policies. Yes, right, uh, exactly. Or, or yeah. ineffectual policies or, or to not have policies. Yeah. And while we often do have policies for students, we don't, uh, we much more rarely have policies that protect staff and faculty um, and instructors. Um, yeah. So I think that's one thing. The, the, other, the, other, the other piece I think is, um, is uh, oh, and I'm gonna lose my train of thought again. Yeah, that yeah, I'll just say. I mean, I think I think especially since a lot of people who listen to this are are faculty and and researchers and graduate students. I mean, do, thinking about your contingent faculty, your staff, uh, people who often fall through the cracks of these decisions because they're so they're so overworked and underpaid that they don't have time to, to do service. And so they don't get a voice at the table a lot. So being their voice at the table. Yeah. On a much bigger a political mm -hmm. uh, piece, you know, Elizabeth Warren was the only democratic candidate who had a really fulsome platform to think through issues for disabled people. Yeah. Let's all just take um, a minute to pour one out for Elizabeth Warren's 2020 candidacy because <laughs> but, but Joe Biden has signaled that yes. he's open yes. to opening all of his platforms and taking good advice. Yes, it's and true. so you know, uh, getting getting behind um, uh, the organizations in in Canada and the United States who are lobbying for disabled people to be listened to on on the higher levels of political decision yeah. making, I think is really really important and. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that Joe Biden can have a platform uh, moving forward that really does take into account um, the essential, um, uh, how essential it's going to be to, to restructure society in ways that are inclusive. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I will just take this opportunity to remind people that the person that Trump appointed as Secretary of Education does not care about people with disabilities or students with learning issues. They care about making money on the school right. system. So. Yeah. You know, I understand that like politics are personal, but there is no world in which a vote for one candidate in this election in the U.S. is a vote for a person with disabilities. <laughs> yeah. Under yeah. no stretch of the imagination. So I will leave it at that. Do you want to say anything else maybe about um, upcoming projects or where people can connect with you or some final thoughts as we wrap up? Well, I would love it if people connect, could, would consider connecting with me, whether that's on Twitter um, I'm sure you can drop my email into, into the uh, information, but uh, social media um, uh, 
I'd love to connect with people. I do have one thing, and just to connect back to that uh, issue of uh, uh, the Secretary of Education, um, that uh, my book, Academic Ableism, is also available online, open access. So it's free and available online, always has been. Um, but there's also a podcast version, not a podcast, an uh, uh, audiobook version of that book that'll be out soon, like within the oh, next cool. days. That's awesome. And so I'll try to share that link with you when I, I can, but that will be, be available at Audible and, and other places for free. Um, or actually maybe on Audible, I think it has to have a s- small price, like maybe eight or nine dollars sure, or something sure. yeah. just to be on that platform, but all the money goes to Audible. Right, <laughs> uh, right. Actually, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just, just trying to make the, the, the disabled upon arrival, but also academic ableism as, as available to people as possible. Um, yeah, well, and let's slow down for a second because actually you've said a bunch of stuff that people might be interested in. So first thing I haven't mentioned is that both is that Disabled Upon Arrival is an Ohio State University Press book. And right now, all of the Ohio State University Press books are available through the, um, through the I guess it's like the OSU, uh, it's for free. You can't just, like, you can't just get online and do it. You have to have, I think, university permission, but, um, or some kind of subscription to the database, if I'm not mistaken. But if you are so lucky as to have a subscription to one of those databases. And if you don't contact your librarian and ask them to see if they can find it for you, I would definitely find it out because that's a great thing for OSU to do. And then you can take that money that you would have spent on disabled upon arrival and you can go uh, spend it on the audible book of your other book, which you wrote right previously. That's right. And that one's called what now? Academic ableism. That's right. Academic ableism. Yes. I have. And there's lots of overlaps there, but if if you're a teacher, there's lots of suggestions in that book for how you could make your teaching more accessible too. It comes with an appendix of teaching um, resources and ideas too. And that's wonderful that you're going to do that as an audio book. How totally accessibility minded of you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it wasn't really my idea. Oh, was Uh, it? Oh, how funny. It was given to me by other people who'd read the book and then said to me, why don't you have an audio version. I was like, yeah, you're totally right. I need to figure out how to do that. Yeah, so. that's great. And then where are you on Twitter? Uh, just at, at, uh, at Jay Dalmage. Oh, easy enough. Okay. Cool. My, my full name. Yeah. So, and, and been trying to, there, I think there's some really excellent stuff and I'm trying to recirculate um, resources and places where you could look to um, l- not just learn more, but also lend your support um, on Twitter uh, or on social media in general. Um, so, you know, if we can connect there, then then that's another place where you could connect to lots of other stuff too. So, Yeah, uh, great. Well, Jay, this has been awesome. I will put all of this in the show notes because I'm sure whoever is um, currently, you know, out, out and about listening to this uh, probably is not going to sit down and hopefully pull out their phone and check. Twitter. True. But um, I almost said walking and then my disability brain was like, what if they're not walking? <laughs> yeah, see, eugenics case. So I will um, put all this in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. And to everyone else, I just want to remind you that we've been discussing the book, Disabled Upon Arrival. And if you want to pick up a copy, uh, yes, you can get a free online PDF through Ohio State University Press. But even better, you could buy a copy of the book hardcover preferably, um, and you can donate it to your local library. And then people who don't have access to these materials the way that a lot of us are privileged to have will be able to take this book out time and time again. And as we've already seen, uh, this topic is going to come up over and over and over again. So the more people that can, can get their hands on Jay's book, the better. Plus, we like to support Ohio State University Press. The university presses help us put out this really great research and work without um, their help books like this would, if they were available, they'd be a lot more expensive and they'd be a lot harder to read. So with that, I will say goodbye and farewell. And I hope everything's great up in, um, where are you? You're in 
You're Waterloo. in Waterloo. Yes, very yeah, cool. Near Toronto. Near Toronto. Yes, yes. Very good old Toronto. Yeah. All right. Spent a lot of time in Kingston when I was younger. In Ontario. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, thank you so much, Jay. And I will see you in Twitter in like five minutes. Thank you. <laughs> Goodbye.